we have to have these conversations. You have to, you, you should realize that most of these conversations are uncomfortable because it's causing you to make a decision and maybe that you're not ready to make that decision or maybe make re- you're not ready to make that realization. And But we have to have it. If you literally wonder what in the world is happening, why um, is why is this Stop Asian Hate movement going on? Why is there a Black Lives Matter movement? Why is there a, a movement about this, this, that, and the third? Um, take a moment and ask somebody and have that conversation. When I first connected with CK Chin, owner of Wu Chow and Swift's Attic in Austin, Texas, it was on February 20. Austin and large parts of the state were frozen over and without power. CK was part of a huge rescue effort getting essential supplies to people without water and food. Since then, so much has happened, so much more. In this, uh, this period where it just seems like Thing, big, big things keep on happening. On March 16, a white man killed eight people, six of them Asian women in the Atlanta area. This fresh tragedy has given the Stop Asian Hate movement sad impetus and CK has been a huge figure in that too. Anti-Asian racism has never not been with us and it's unfortunately also rife in Australian society, but there's definitely been a new wave since COVID-19 came upon us. And in the US, ex-President Trump fanned that fire with disgusting anti-China sentiment. In amongst all this, there have been obviously the huge impacts of the pandemic. Austin has recently reopened to some degree, but mask wearing has been politicised and tensions are still running high. CK, there is there are so many huge topics to talk about, and I'm really grateful to you for coming along to have a chat to me at Dirty Linen. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, overall, I think that uh, you know we've been through a lot, uh, both as a kind of as a species and as a country and as a city, and and keep as you as you narrow it down. And you know, um, I know I get asked this question, you know, a lot. Thankfully, actually, by a lot of people and by friends, and you know, my general answer is always that, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful to still be here. You know, I think that you have to kind of stay humble in times like this to kind of focus on the positive rather than on the negative, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm really conscious of wanting to talk to you about anti-Asian racism, but not wanting to ask you to continue to do the exhausting work of endlessly explaining it. Um, But, you know, at risk of doing exactly what I just said I don't want to do, what do you think is the best way to have these conversations and create the kind of allyship that will hopefully spark and sustain change? You know, uh, it's funny. We we say exhausting, and the only reason it's exhausting is because it's repetitive, meaning that we, we continue to have it. You know, now I'm 41. And, you know, we've had it since I was a child, you know, and so uh, it's exhausting because we don't see as much change as we would like. I don't think it's exhausting if we see it the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think it's exhausting if we can find a way to make this the last conversation or some sort of progress or anything like that. I think that um, I think that's what it is. You know, I, I came upon this kind of a inadvertently a kind of profound realization when I was writing uh, a little kind of an op-ed type thing for a for a publication and and somebody asks what's the most meaningful thing we can do to to do this right to to fix to fight this right now and you know what I came up with was you know you got to do your work on yourself to make this mean something to you first and and then start there um Doing anything, having a conversation about this that's shouldered on guilt or shouldered on hurt or even even to a certain degree empathy in the or sense of empathy, I think 
is a is a kind of a futile exercise. I think at the end of the day, we're going to have it again if you're trying to rely on the the emotions of the moment or something like that. I think ultimately, what needs to really happen is for this to mean something to you it has to has to hit home for you in some way. Um, you know, one of the conversations we have to talk about anti Asian hate, and for us as in America, at least for anti Asian American hate, is is violence against Asian Americans is violence against Americans until we start to see this as something that is happening to us instead of to them um, or to other, you know, us or the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement is and, and every demographic or any sort of community that can be identified and isolated in a such a way, the ability to recognize that as part of the community is the first step. And so it starts to become, how do we fix our problem rather than how do we fix your problem or how do we help with your problem? It's not my problem. It's our problem. It's what we as a community and as a society want to are okay with or not okay with what we're willing to deal with and what we're not willing to deal with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, that really resonates with me and it it always, It, it, this sort of othering of people who are different from us, whether it's, you know, that, that um, you know, I'm a woman and you're a man or um, you're Asian and I'm Jewish. It's, um, you know, I, I think we, there are so many ways that we can look for things that, that connect us rather than things that separate us. I mean, one of the things, you know, people always ask me, why do I love to write about food? Why do I love to, um, to connect with the food industry? And, and it, for me, it's, it is about connection and it is about understanding. Do you think that, do you think that that's too much of a cliche? Like, is there something (laughs) in there? Is there something in that? Yeah, I think it's a cliche because, you know, because everyone knows it, you know, something becomes cliche and it's one of those things that I talk about is, it's funny how cliche kind of has become a negative connotation because we're talking about something as passe as if we're trying to stay trendy. And it's like, you know, sometimes things are, are, you know, traditional or whatever, because they're important. You know, I think that, you know, the the analogy I gave to a friend of mine was like, if I told you, and there's a, you know, there's a neighborhood out here, you know, Austin, let's call it, you know, right now we're in Westlake, you know, or whatever. And we found out that there's somebody that's going around in Westlake, just picking off people, murdered seven people and in your neighborhood. And then you find out that this person was only picking off people that, represent a demographic that you're not part of any, but people who are six foot tall and higher taller, and you happen to be five, five, does that give you relief or do you still be, are you still concerned that it's taking people off in your neighborhood, you know, and then you find out that the person doing it is a part of your demographic, someone that matches your description. Does that make you more concerned or less concerned? Like these type of things, uh, you know, that doesn't change the fact that this is happening to where you are. This is happening to where we're living in. And again, this is kind of saying that, yeah, all that, all that matters is that is that moment of concern that you have when you're like, is this going to happen to us? I think what made this even stand out so much more was during the ice storm in, in Texas, it was so unanimous. It, it, in the very, very beginning, it was certain neighborhoods and certain things were popping out. These people were losing power and you kind of saw it kind of the dominoes start to fall. And in the very beginning, it was a lot of bit, a little bit of like a sympathy. It's just like, oh, man, that sucks. I'm sorry that you have to deal with that. But then as you saw that it was everybody, all of a sudden people kind of joined hands across America to sit there and say, all right, we need to help each other because now I'm affected. You're affected. This person to the right of you is affected. And so – it kind of became this thing that we all needed to figure out 
how to get through it. You know, and some people obviously more than others are, are, or have the, you know, wherewithal to do something more than the others. But it doesn't change the fact that it was a little bit more unanimous that we we're all going through it rather than when you first happened and it was only this neighborhood and you kind of went, all right, well, I'm glad I still have power. I'm sorry that they don't, but good luck, you know, kind of thing. And it was one of those things that, yeah, if you happen to have a friend that lived in that neighborhood, then maybe you'd reach out and say, hey, do you want to come over to my house? I have power over here, whatever. But until it became a Texas-wide and Austin-wide thing, um, you know, we were all pretty content with just being thankful that it didn't affect us. Yeah. You know? and, and it's like, but why, though? You know, this is somebody in your community, in your city that was dealing with it. Do we all agree that nobody should have to deal with something like that? Now, granted, again, not having power, this type of infrastructural thing is hard to compare that to racism or anything. But, you know, this, are, are we OK with that? You know, and that's the only thing you have to say. You have to admit I'd rather you admit that you're OK with it than to say that it's not a big deal, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there is so much in what you're saying. It's um it's that ubiquity creates empathy in a way where it's like if everybody's experiencing something, then you can be, it's, it's obvious and easy to be empathetic for the person that's standing right next to you who, you know, also doesn't have water or doesn't have power. But I, why is it that we can't find that empathy within us for people who are having a different experience? whether it's because of something inherent to to who they are, like like their race or their sex or whatever it is, um, or simply because, you know, their pipe broke and yours didn't. It's, why, it's, yeah, why is this problem intractable? Why isn't it simpler to realise uh, that we're all humans, like, you know, finding a path through this world together? And I'm not really asking you to answer that it's because kind of obviously right? that's yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that's quite a big a one. I can answer that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, obviously, I don't know, or else you know, I, I would have shared it with everybody. I, I think it kind of hinges on um, it's just a personality or a trait that we all kind of learn to kind of watch out for ourselves first, and then if we have anything left over to help other people. And right now, a lot of this country is hurting and a lot of, there's a lot of people that are wounded. And I think that, you know, especially with COVID and especially with, you know, um, you know, everything else that we're dealing with as a country, I, I think that these types of stress, the stress, the stress test that this country is being put under really kind of makes those who have the will to try to make a change step up and you and it's empowering and beautiful to see the amount of people that were in the streets earlier you know last summer and you know moving forward to talk about social change and then to see the people rally up to try to help the community always it's great to see that but simultaneously it really kind of shows where the cracks are and you know cracks are where we are where these are the things that are, are, are coming. So I, I really do hope that all of this has become the fever before the healing, as it were, you know, to, to tie into an illness analogy. I think that um, the illness metaphor, as it were, you know, because we've all kind of felt that right now. Uh, I, I hope that that's what's happening. I hope that what we're feeling is the strain that's causing you to choose a side and just causing you to recognize that. You know, if you're going to be a part of if you're not part of the solution, that you're kind of part of the problem and that this ability to kind of isolate yourself and say that I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do and stay out of my way. And, you know, if you don't bother me, I won't bother you. 
um, I think that mentality started to fade away as we start to realize how much we depend on each other and how much we really are connected. And, you know, again, how, you know, how these communities affect each other, you know, and I hope, I hope this is why these things are coming up a little bit more aggressively or more common, more, uh, have a little bit more, um, I guess more volume as it were, um, as opposed to the fact that yes, we've had this conversation before. Yes. I've dealt with this for most of my life. Yes. We've all had to have been fighting these very similar battles. It was very frustrating, but at the same time, I feel like it's been, it's louder than it's ever been, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we experienced in Australia at the beginning of the pandemic, a, a very odd unity where it felt like we really were all going to stand together and deal with this thing. And I mean, as you said, you know, the pandemic sh uh showed where many of the cracks in society were and even from a health perspective we could see that people of a you know a lower socioeconomic status were impacted um impacted more i know in the us there's a, you know a, lo a lot of the the illness and the death has been along racial lines like minority communities have been affected um worse and of course you know that intersects with the socioeconomic um factors um so it's yeah it's it's like there are these great opportunities for unity and empathy but i think also a lot of bunkering down and people kind of trying to you know i guess retreating into their privilege in some ways and building the walls up around them and i mean i think one of the things that you can see and i'm obviously not in the us but one of the things that i've seen a lot is even just the way that people deal with wearing masks it's um you don't see as much empathy and consideration for others as as you would like. And I think in hospitality, it's such a frontline industry. It, it's and you know a lot of people that work in hospitality are um, from minorities and they're not well paid. They rely on tips in the US. I mean, it's the power imbalances there are so stark and and just just really scary it's like that that someone's someone's sense of entitlement could actually kill you you, you know and, and it's what it is is that i think that we made that mistake earlier i used to uh, i was talking about how that was the biggest mistake was to tell people that the masks don't protect yourself they protect, they protect other people because um, that's a concept that's pretty profound for a lot of people a lot of people were using it uh they you can tell because people are comparing it to seatbelts, right um, and I was like, well, when you wear a seatbelt in your car, it's to protect yourself. You get in a car wreck, it saves your life. Um, you know, it's a different story if, if I had to wear a seatbelt because if I got in a wreck, it increases the chance of the person that I hit for them to die. You know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a different concept. And I think that I would say that, you know, a big percentage of our population here, um, really haven't grasped the idea of masks, meaning, well, if I choose not to protect myself, why does it matter? You know, and, and when we're talking about it, it has nothing to do with that. This is the concept that if somewhere someone told me that, hey, CK, we discovered this new thing. If you wear a blue hat, uh, you know, an orange socks, you know, it, it limits the spread of COVID. Then I'd be like, well, give me an orange sock and give me blue hat. Like, you know, like who cares? Doesn't match. You know, what I mean, it's like at this point, I'm like this minor inconvenience. Let's give it a shot. If it doesn't work, then I'll go back to my wearing my regular socks when they told me like the idea that this has some sort of symbolic tie-in with your freedoms or your rights as a as a human um, is very fascinating because it, it's just 
it's just not. It's just such a minor inconvenience to hopefully help us kind of wrap our brain around or wrap our you know arms around how to get a handle on this. And, and I think that that's where it comes down to is that we just don't care enough about each other. It's the, you know, I, the conversation, somebody, uh, you know, are in my conversations, even about this, the, the Asian violence is somebody mentioned that a percentage, somebody gave me a percentage and was like, this is truly is not that many, you know, this isn't that bad. And, and, and I was like, okay, I said, fine. I, I, I respect that you have that opinion. I said, so, the question I have to you or anybody that says this, and it was the same thing with COVID. I said, what number is enough? You know, when we hit a thousand dead, do I come and talk to you? And are you ready to march for us then? When we hit 10,000, a hundred thousand, you tell me the number because you telling me that this isn't enough is deflecting. That's not enough. You, you're not telling me enough. You've told me that this isn't bad enough. And I totally get it. I mean, we all make these calculations instantaneously in our heads. There's a small percentage of people that die in plane crashes, but guess what? It's the fastest way for me to get to Australia, right? I'm not going to get it on. I'm not going to get on a boat or whatever it is because of the time. And we're making this calculation in our head. We get in our car every day. We drive. And guess what? There's a percentage of calculation that even says that if I happen to check my text message while I'm driving, that there's a percentage of chance, higher chance that I'm going to die doing it, you know, or worse, kill somebody. I make that calculation every, every time and I deem it worth it. Because not enough people have died from it to make me change my life, right? So I'm like, okay, what what's that number? And that's the question. That's the real question. And what I mean by that is the same thing. If you look at this winter storm and they talk about it and the media kind of hyper, you know, makes it hyper aware of this many people died or that many people died, it doesn't matter. It, it could have been a lot worse and it shouldn't have had even been one, you know? And it's like, to me, that's the question is that are we willing to live in a society that says, okay, can we be, are we okay with this at a certain number or, or when does that tipping point reach you to all of a sudden care? And I don't, I, I can't answer that for anybody but myself, but that is the thing. I, I had a lot of sympathy for this person saying that because I feel like a lot of people feel that way, you know? Well, I think that's, that's very generous of you. And I, I guess the, the distinction that I would draw between, you know, the checking your text message or coming to Australia by plane scenarios is that one's about hate and acting like dishonouring someone else's right to be there, which I, I suppose you could say checking your text messages is also disrespectful to anyone else who happens to be in the world around you. Uh, but I think to target people because of something inherent in them, I don't know. To me, there's there's something different. Oh, there's absolutely. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that they, they they hold any sort of congruence in its in, in its in its at its core. I, I, what I mean is that in and of itself, there is a threshold that you're willing to put up with certain things, right? There's a threshold that we're willing to put up with that Coca-Cola tastes good. It's eating up our insides, but it's worth it. Somehow, you know, there's a threshold that we do for everything. We have a threshold that we're willing to cost benefit and, you know, return on investment for whatever it is that we do. And most of us, thankfully, I think most, I, I'm fair to say that it's most 51% that have a very low threshold for hate, right? We generally have a low threshold for hate. But as it starts to go further down this kind of sliding scale, then you start to define hate. 
And then you have to start to define whether or not this uh, this is what it is. I mean, a hundred a hundred years ago, there was Vincent Chin, right? That was uh, murdered by a bunch of auto workers. Uh, Chinese American that was murdered because uh, it was a, during a time as anti-Japanese sentiment because of uh, the, a lot of factories and car uh, so on and so forth. I believe it even had some stuff to do with the war. But um, he was murdered, and he, whenever they went to trial, they still to this day on record have stated that it was not racially motivated. Right. Uh, so people, that's what happened. You watched it happen every time and you watched it happen last week, you know, when this happened in Atlanta, where we deflected and said it wasn't race related. It wasn't racially, you know, it was it was a sex addiction thing, um, not to, to, to not ignore the fact that it was Asian owned and Asian operated business. And it was. In a in a city and sorry in a city that was is four percent Asian they happen to hit these it happens to be this way and the and the intersection there just is just all coincidence that this wasn't the case um, not to mention the fact that that doesn't make it better it doesn't make it doesn't make it doesn't make it better that he was targeting sex workers that doesn't make it better you know that doesn't make it anything and so it's it's kind of like these are all ways that we. Uh, justify it to ourselves to keep us underneath that threshold because once it crosses over for us, then we have guilt and we have what we need to go and take action and we do everything in our power to do that. It's like the equivalent. I mean, again, I keep drawing it to try to make connections with people to understand. It's like me deciding to, you know what? I'm I don't I don't need to go to the gym because these pants still fit. You know, whatever it is, like you're just literally justifying it any way you can, because once you pass that threshold, then you have to admit that you're either okay with this new threshold and you have to expand to include this hate, this animosity, this prejudice, this racism, whatever it is, or you have to take action to bring it back down below the threshold, in which case is also a commitment. So to me, uh, I think that's what's happening. I think that's what happens all the time. And I think it's that fear of us recognizing that, oh, man, if I draw the line in the sand here or guess what? Somebody drew that line in the sand for me. I'm on the other side now. And so now I have to decide either that I'm OK with being on this side or I have to move. And, you know, we all don't and, you know, not everybody wants to move, you know. And so um, I think that's where we're at. I think that's what's happening right now is that as we see it constantly when people are dealing with this type of issue is you know, it puts people to a decision. And unfortunately, the easiest way to do it is to say, oh, well, there's an Asian American hate. This is nothing. This is normal. And we're OK with that. And we're and what it is, is anybody that says that it's OK, it's not that bad is just admitting. And I'd rather again, I say I can debate with you that if you're OK with it, there's nothing I can say. You're just OK with it. You know, I, at this moment, I have to debate why you're OK with it. But at the very least, you admit that you're OK with it rather than saying it doesn't exist, mm. you know. And you're saying that that is that could be a starting point as well. I think that is the starting point. The starting point is to talk to somebody like like I've had that conversation before at the beginning of COVID. I really can't debate you on how to fix COVID if you don't believe it exists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't. I, that, that, I mean, it's the equivalent. I said before, and people talked to me, uh, somebody interviewed me the, the other day about that. And I said, well, you have to remember this way. If somebody doesn't believe this is an issue, it's the equivalent to them, whether I believe it or not, that I tell them to come in and put on this amulet to protect them from the vampires. 
and the the silly how silly it is to them that this is actually a thing and that they think that this is the most obscene upset uh, you know the most ridiculous idea and for me to have that debate is the same for somebody who doesn't believe this exists and so the first step has to be that you have to believe that this is a thing you know I just, it doesn't mean anything to you this 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 conversation will literally go nowhere i really need you to even if it's one person, even if it's uh, your one person in your life that this has affected and then you want to talk to that person and that means something to you to do it, then you can do something. But until that moment, all of this means nothing because, you you know, you haven't made that work. You haven't done that work on yourself to make this mean something to you. Mm. And you're you're very you're a really amazing communicator and the analogies that you're able to draw I think would really make so many people stop in their tracks, consider how they're thinking and start to dismantle some of the, I guess, the preconceptions that they, they live in. What is it in you like that took you, that took you to this point that, 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 um, that made you the person that you are? I, you know, I grew up broken household, uh, kind of an abusive family household with my father, not around my mother and my grandmother were incredible, um, instrumental in raising my sister and I. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I named the restaurant after my grandmother, last name Wu. My last name is Chin. I named it after her um, because she was the one that raised me. She was the one that fed me and cooked me. And I was like, she deserves credit before I get credit, you know. And um, I think that there was a kind of moment in my childhood when I was probably in middle school where as you're starting to learn about psychology and you're starting to hear about people that the reason why person A became adult A was because of this is what they went through. And, and it felt like it was fate that if you went through these hardships or went through these things that you had to become this way. And I just really rebelled against that idea. I really rebelled against the idea that um, if you weren't hugged enough as a kid that you could grow up and be a hateful person or not know how to hug people. I just, um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm simplifying. I'm kind of ad absurdum, kind of arguing these kind of statements. But that was my understanding as a middle schooler, and and I really kind of fought back against that because to me there was this moment of I can choose how I react to things. Anything that happens to me, I can choose whether or not that will, you know, that'll affect. I, you know, it's, it's all about perspective. I think, uh, you know, I, I talk about you know, one of the more, you know, also another important figure in my life was my grandfather and he raised me and yeah. along with my mother, and my grandmother, and, and we were, you know, so very, very close. He ended up passing away from cancer. And a, and a quick story was as a kid, I remember he was a gardener. He used to come out and he would water his lawn, uh, his flowers and his, you know, his plants every day. And I would come home and whether he intended to or not, he was always outside when I came home from school. So it's this kind of figurehead in my head that he was always there watering the lawn and, and, and stuff like that. So it just kind of became you know part of my memories. Now, when he was sick, he obviously went several several months, uh, you know, up, up upwards to almost a year that he was unable to be out there watering the lawn. And it just kind of you just kind of get used to it as a as a, a human. You just kind of get used to these type of things. And and I remember that, um, you know, on the day that he passed, I came home. I had a really bad day at school. Whatever was going on was going on in my life. It was, you know, at this, at this moment, obviously, I don't even remember. It was so, you know, m minuscule at that. It was just large to a middle schooler. Oh, sorry, to a high schooler. Um, 
And I came home and I walked through the door. Uh, he had been struggling and fighting for cancer with cancer for a long time. I came home. I looked in the, into my living room and my entire family was there. Aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody. And, and so I knew right away. I was like, that's what happened. I knew exactly what happened, you know, burst into tears, obviously. And I, I just turned around and walked out the room. Right. I went back outside. There was not a single cloud in the sky. Beautiful, sunny day. And it started raining. Like it just started raining. And I remember in my head, the perspective was rather than, of course, it's raining. Look at well, how, how could this day get any worse? But what popped in my head was that he's watering the plants again, you know? Um, oh, my gosh. And, um, and that that perspective, like I started laughing and it really gave me a lot of peace and it really – it's just, you know, I, it, it's just, it was just literally a, a perspective shift, you know, and, and, and that's kind of where I, that's how I live my life a lot, you know, and as much as I can, meaning things are going to happen to us unexpected, expected. We're going to make plans that don't fall, that don't work or fall through. And we're going to have relationships that don't work or work and everything like that. But if you can have control over yourself and your perspective on how to look at it, you're going to end up being a lot better off in the end, you know, because you're not at the whim and at the mercy of this, these unstoppable forces of the universe, you know? Um, and I think that's where it kind of all started as early as then, or even before then was that kind of perspective of, you know, I refuse to say that this is that the, the day was ruined because it rained or this, this was happening or this was, that was going on. It just, uh, it really changed everything for me. And then I just, as long as I can remember, that's always been the way that I've looked at life. That, I mean, that is such a powerful and inspiring story. I've got tears. I've got chills. I just, um, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's really very powerful. And I can, I can see the transformative nature of, of, um, that experience and and interpreting it like that because I suppose you know as you're saying it's it's not what happens to you it's what you do with it right and that's a cliche too right people all the time tell you that I mean you probably sure we've heard that a thousand <laughs> times and but the the fact is most people don't most people don't take that to heart and I really do believe that even when all this was happening um, in the beginning it was like I talked to a lot of marginalized community you know, people that are in marginalized communities. And, and I was like, yeah, we're just all kind of waiting our turn. You know, during 9-11, I remember we had the same conversation because I had friends of mine who were Indian, who were getting this hate that were just, and they were, it was the totally wrong country, you know? And it was like, and it, and it was, I remember having to kind of walk people through this, um, this kind of situation. And it was like profoundly stupid that, that I had to, we had to deal with it in that way. But a lot of hate is rooted in, in ignorance and a lot of hate is rooted in closed mindedness. And, and we have to, it sounds, it is exhausting and it is difficult and not everyone is suited for this. And it's not necessarily our job, but to me, if we're looking for results and if we're looking to try to make progress, we have to do the work and see where it's coming from to get to the disease and not the symptoms. And right now, this is a symptom of a much larger disease. And we are just in the hot seat right now. It is just our turn, you know, for the time being. And until we can address the disease 
full front and, you know, and admit to ourselves this is what we're dealing with. Um, we're just going to mitigate the symptoms and we're just going to soothe it for a little bit and then ultimately just wait until the next the next one comes around until the next community decides to, you know, or that, that gets, gets addressed, you know? And so, you know, I think it takes case, patience and care. Yeah. Well, it does take patience and care and an openness to learning and changing. And I mean, even this idea that every minority has to have its turn at being discriminated against, it, you know, as well as everything else that demonstrates how absolutely stupid it is. Yes. Um, I think that, you know, obviously broader social justice uh, is part of the fix where if people feel more equal and empowered and that they've got legitimate pathways to success uh, in society, then that is going to, uh, yeah, that is going to help. Um and I think, you know, what we've what we've witnessed in the US, without wanting to speak about your country, but what we've seen in the US is uh, leadership that has not been uh, promoting that. It's been about um, inequality rather than raising people up. Do you feel that the tone is changing for you there at the moment? Mm, I wish I could say it is. I, I do think that we're going off of coming off of the heels of of all the social justice in the summertime and and the way that it has emboldened people to speak up i think that has definitely helped and i think that that's probably has attributed a lot to the tonal change you know um i do see that the divisiveness that comes amongst individual minority groups like you can see that people in power are trying to divide by pitting one minority group against another you can watch it happening before your eyes it's like obviously like you can look at people trying to harbor and and, and create a black and a black and asian um divide you know um and and things like that i think that that is a very um real kind of angle that some people are are, are directing and i think that it's part and parcel with um, is just getting more attention than before, you know? And I think that, again, this is why we need to kind of come together and recognize that the, the bigger disease is ignorance and hate and, and recognize that, that the way that we have to address and handle these type of situations is with empathy and compassion and recognizing, you know, that it is a, it is a small amount of the population that actually does the terrible things, but it is up to the majority of our population to decide whether or not that those things are acceptable or not. You know, it's relatively easy. I think that if we all agree that this is unacceptable, that we could all agree on ways that we can fix it as a society. Like we said, if we shrunk the country down to a hundred people, you know, it would be very easy because it would be one person that's doing this. And then everyone's like, well, let's get, let's stop this one person, you know, but it feels crazy when it's a hundred million, you know, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, what are we going to do? Um, it's the same thing as, you know, you talk about, you know, any sort of situation, poverty, whatever, if there's only one person in the, in the group that needs it. I think generally we have enough empathy to go like, well, let's just help Tom out and he'll be okay. You know, but instead when it comes down to this monumental, like 10,000 people, 50,000 people or whatever it is, it starts to seem unsurmountable. And I think that 
that's why I always tell people, I'm like, start where you're at, looking around in your community and, 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 and see where you can go. And, you know, I said that, you know, all of our arms are different lengths, you know, um, but I think that if we all reach out, you know, eventually we'll connect to each other. And, and I, I'm not expecting everyone to um, to do the exact same amount or everyone to take it upon themselves to go out and become an activist. But I will say that if this matters to you, if you wake up and say, you know what, I don't want to live in a society like this, what can I do? Well, then look at that meaning, look in your heart and realize that that's what you're, that you wouldn't want to do. And then find out where your resources lie, how many resources you're willing to do. If anything, if that's just sharing a message on um, Instagram or Facebook, or if that's you just taking this podcast and listening to it and sharing it with one person to say, hey, you know, I heard this conversation and it really resonated with me. Why don't you listen to it? And so on and so forth. If that's the extent of what you're able or willing to do, then that's the extent. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's no problem, you know. But as you start to do your internal work and you realize that this is important and then you're not okay with living in a society that has these problems, then you'll find yourself automatically looking for more ways that you can help. I mean, that's how the water thing started. It wasn't, I mean, we didn't set out. That was not a goal of ours to, I mean, I didn't wake up in the beginning of 2020, 2019, 2018 and said, one day I'm going to pass out water to people. You know, it wasn't, that wasn't, it had, it didn't even cross my mind. It literally started on Wednesday night. I don't know if you happen to catch that video. Um, we started on Wednesday night. Uh, my, we got a boil notice. We'd been without power for like four days, uh, water boil notice that now all of Austin was going to have no water unless you boiled it. And my business partner called me up at 11 o'clock at night. It was like, what can we do? You know? And I was like, well, I guess people are going to need water. And so we just started making some phone calls. And then next thing you know, we got a hold of one of our buddies who owns a water cup or distributes water. And we're like, well, how much water do you have? And he's like, well, I've got 15 pallets. I'm like, we'll take all of it. You know, we'll figure it out. We'll fund, we'll fundraise later. We'll get it. Let's pull the trigger. Get those wheels rolling. Meet us out there at this time. We'll distribute that water first. And let's figure out if we can find a way to pay ourselves back. And if not, well, then so what? You know, and it was just at that moment, we just realized that that's what happened. And then once we got that first round Guess what? It inspired a couple other people. I got reached out to somebody called me and was like, I heard you were doing this. He's like, all right, well, you know, I don't have I don't know how I can help, but I can I can make some I can raise some money. I can give you some money to help out with this cause. And through a number of phone calls within the next six hours or whatever it was, four hours, you know, we had one hundred fifty thousand bottles of water coming into Austin, you know, because we just happened to right people happen to hear. And I happen to know the right people and the right hearted people. And it's like, but this is us all sitting there saying that our heart was there first, and then we just seeked it out. And any anybody who sat there and wanted to know how to help, they could have done it. There was no, there's nothing that I did that was more special than the next. I don't believe personally. I think you know what anybody could take from what you're saying is that activism isn't something that other people do. It's like we all have power to act as you say, start where we are and we all have the power to create change and small change is still change. Um, CK, tell me what it's like running restaurants in Austin at the moment. Um, what are you guys allowed to do in terms of dining in? What's what's the vibe like? Are people, what are, you know, how are people feeling about restaurants? Well, Texas is strange. Obviously, you know that we're all kind of YOLO out here. Um, our governor just opened everything back up and removed all the mandates and everything. So um, 
the the weirdest part is that we are in a weird position that we are self-governing ourselves to the level of safety that we feel is safe based off of national or global guidelines and then public sentiment, as well as the obligation that I have to my own employees to say that they're not expendable. They're not, you know, um, I'm not willing to put their lives at risk for the, for a dollar, you know, for, for any dollar amount. And so us personally, as well as hundreds of restaurants around town, I think are, have taken upon ourselves to almost keep things pretty standard trying to do as much social distancing, keep the table still apart, running at a limited capacity, because we understand that also, just logistically speaking, if we were to, if somebody in our group were to catch it or to have a small outbreak, we have to shut down for a, a week, you know, or depending on probably even longer, depending on how many staff members there are, not to mention the fact that, you know, that's just not what I'm willing to sacrifice is that one person that potentially could you know, go to the worst degree, right? Um, you know, how can I live with myself if that if I did that because I chose to remove safety standards before it was before we knew it was ready or so on and so forth? You know, there's a there's a large there's a large contingent of restaurants that are really pushing forward. We're super excited that you know we got an announcement that starting Monday we're all eligible for vaccines. So. You know, getting us all vaccinated is probably the first step in us being able to open and get back to some semblance of normality of being able to be open because whether we liked it or not, we are frontline workers. <laughs> you know, like we're not, you know. Yeah. We so you're eligible for vaccines as hospitality workers? I believe so. Starting Monday, as if I, I believe everybody, I believe everybody is technically. Yeah, as long, if you can get it, you can get it. So I, I hope to see it accelerate. But I do know that a lot of those uh, efforts are moving forward. And so. You know, for us, that's what it is. We're in hospitality from start to finish. So it's it's part of my I mean, I thought it was I've always thought it was monumentally insane sometimes that the the people put allergies um, at the hands of the restaurants, you know, like I remember I, when I first started in the career, my career, I was in Japanese restaurants and run sushi bars and somebody would come in and they're allergic to sesame seeds. And I'm like, you need to get out of here, man. Like, <laughs> like sesame seeds are damn near microscopic and they can kill you. Like, oh, my God, the level of pressure and concern. I was like, they look like peppercorns. Like, I, I mean, I was like, like, you know, so nervous because like somebody put literally their lives in, in our hands of a, a chef that's doing 150 tickets, you know, and one of those tickets says that this ingredient that we use in literally everything if one ends up on this person's plate, this person might die. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's like that same thing. Somebody goes, hey, I'm allergic to peanuts. OK. And then you say, well, does this have peanuts? It's like, no. But, you know, the dish that we just cooked. I mean, like so when we take allergies very seriously because you trust us with that. And so it's like forever and ever hospitality has been trusted probably beyond our pay grade for people's safety. Uh, but, you know, so I, I look it upon it the same way. You just come in here. You feel with for whether with whether it's warranted or not, you feel like you should come into this restaurant and feel safe and not, you know, I, I'm not OK with you coming in saying, uh, well, you know, I got it. I caught it when I was eating here at this restaurant. You know, it's my fault for going out anyways. You know, that's no, it's not. The expectation is that we're keeping you safe. Right. The expectation is that you're not going to get food poisoning. The expectation is that we're keeping sanitary and that we're washing the glasses and we're doing all these things to keep you safe. Every every 19,000 things 
that we're expected to do to keep you safe, healthy, and happy on top of giving you good service and a, a pleasant, fun, delicious experience. That's all part parcel and going through the mind of any operator that's worth their salt, right? Anybody who really loves the job thinks about this nonstop. And that's where we're at. And that's where I'm at and where my colleagues are at that do it. And so we're all trying our best to navigate and take care of our employees, take care of our guests so that they feel welcome, comfortable and safe. And at this moment, even though we could probably turn up the gas a little bit and probably get a little, a few more bodies in there, uh, as far as most of us go, we're probably not quite ready yet. But, uh, you know, I hope that with the vaccines, I hope that we're getting closer. Oh, wow. Um, CK, is there anything else that you want to say that we, that we haven't touched on today as we as we wrap it up? Oh, what above, uh, you know, above the beyond uh, the global pandemic and trying to end racism? Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've, we've tackled some big ones and I reckon, yeah. you know, yeah. like you're an incredible communicator and I reckon we've actually got somewhere and, you know, well, yeah. I appreciate that. No, I think I, I, I love this is a thing. We got to shy. We got to stop shying away from uncomfortable, quote unquote, uncomfortable conversations. Um, we have to have these conversations. You have to, you, you should realize that most of these conversations are uncomfortable because it's causing you to make a decision and maybe that you're not ready to make that decision or maybe make re- you're not ready to make that realization. And, but we have to have it. You know, if there is an ignorance coming and why, if you literally wonder what in the world is happening, why, um, is, why is this stop Asian hate movement going on? Why is there a Black Lives Matter movement? Why is there a, a movement about this, this, that, and the third? Um, Take a moment and ask somebody and have that conversation. You know, you got to ask the right person. You know, I think that, you know, you're going to luck out by talking to me versus somebody who's 20 years in and very bitter and angry. You know, I think that you need to find somebody who's not quite there to where they're already over it and ready. You know, they've been grizzled and fighting. I think that there's you have to find somebody with some patience. And again, I said that if that's how you deal with trauma, then I'm not judging you either. If that's if you're angry and you don't have the patience to do it. I, I agree. But at the same time, I think that there needs to be people like myself on the same front lines willing to have that conversation with the people who are are kind of on the edge. You know, I, I uh, like the, the debate that I was talking about that somebody told me it wasn't that bad. You know, we had a very long debate uh, on, you know, on social media in a back and forth. And a lot of people were like pr- confused like ck why are you wasting your time with this guy why are you what are you doing and they were kind of attacking them and and stuff and i was like look it's not about this person if this if i don't change this person's mind fine but i need to treat this person with a level of respect that when somebody's reading this who might have felt the same way this person did but is unsure that when they read it they should see that I am treating that person with patience rather than that person going, well, hell no, I'm not going to say anything because look at how everyone dogpiles on this guy, you know? And, and so for me, it was, I have to, I have to be patient because I'm hoping that there's somebody who's teetering on the edge that's ready to realize that this is not right. I don't like being on the side of inaction or I don't like that. This is how I feel and, and wondering how to get past that. And then for us to sit there and say, well, you should know better. Um, I think is uh, I think it's a, it's not personally the way that I uh, that I like to deal with it. I I recognize this one last kind of story before I go out. I realize this. I have a young nephew. I have a three year old well, turning four soon, and then um, and I have a one year old. And so I realized that 
when he comes up to me and asks me how to do something, open up this bag of potato chips, please help him tie his shoe, you know, put this together, so on and so forth. I have an extraordinary amount of patience recognizing that he is a toddler and he's learning it. And even if I've showed him 10 times, I'm, I'm still willing to because A, I love him. B, I care about him. And C, I recognize where he's at on his life. We have to recognize that some people are dealing with racism as a toddler level, even though they look like a grown adult, you know. And so when somebody comes at you and asks you a question that seems crazy that somebody of 35 years of age should even be asking that you should go educate yourself. There's Google. The Internet is free. You should go do that yourself. But you would that be the equivalent of me telling this my three year old nephew to say how in the world I've showed you how to tie your shoe three times, figure it out. You know, and that level of patience. And I personally, I was just like, I can't I got to recognize that there are some people in this in this world that are that are, you know, toddlers in their mindset of in their growth and in their level of development to handle entitlement and, 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 you know, and, you know, privilege and racism. And and they're they're absolutely, um, you know, behind and underdeveloped in those ways. And for me to treat that person with the same level of of anger or, you know, disgust that I have towards the actual people that we're trying to you know, um, address, I think is unfair. And, um, and while I agree, you don't have to feel that way. I personally do. CK, it's, it's an absolute privilege to speak to you and, um, and get your perspective. I know that this conversation is going to change people and I'm super grateful for your time, for your insights and for, for all that you bring to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to having another one. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.